God, we thank you for your word and pray that, uh, that it would go deep in our hearts and bear fruit tonight. And uh, we want to just draw near with open ears and open hearts, ready to, ready to learn and grow and uh, be comforted and challenged by your word. And we pray that you would do all that tonight in a fresh and powerful way. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the book of First John, we're in the, the home stretch of overviewing the Bible. Next week we're going to do the books of Second and Third John and the book of Jude. They're all one chapter each. Um, sometimes they're actually called the postcards of the New Testament. They're very short, and so we'll put them together. Um, and then a week after that, we're going to overview the book of Revelation. And we will have overviewed the entire Bible in a year. Uh, and I hope it's been a blessing. I've enjoyed it. I've just enjoyed sort of having to step back and, and see, you know, the big picture. And I love the beautiful thing about the Word is from any view and any distance, it's still the Word of God. And so you can zoom in to Greek verbs and Greek tense, and you can enjoy all of that, and you can glean so much insight from that. You can also zoom way out and say, what does the book of Ezekiel say as a whole? And, and there's so much there, too. So, um, so, you know, the overview thing is just really uh, a blessing to me. I'm really loving it. But um, tonight we find ourselves in the book of First John. And this is written by the Apostle John, the Disciple John. In the, Old Te- in the Gospels, it talks about Peter, James, and John, the three disciples who seem to have been with Jesus more than any of the others. And this is that John. Uh, so Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John did this and did that. And, and this is that John. And so he's writing this... Um, much later, after Jesus has gone into heaven, this is after the church has been started and established, um, John would wind up being the last surviving apostle, the last of the original 12, uh, the last eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so John, as he winds up writing these books later in life, uh, he's trying to make sure we understand certain things. He's watching, you know, he became a pastor, uh, pastored basically his whole life, pastored uh, wound up pastoring the church in Ephesus for a long period of time. But, um, you know, he's starting to watch the church go through a transitional period where all the people who knew Jesus personally and could say, well, yeah, I was there and it was like this. Those people are starting to die off now. And John is really the last, if not if one of the last or the last at the time of this writing. And so there's starting to arise a new generation of people who weren't eyewitnesses. And that's a great thing because people are, believing in faith and we walk by faith and not by sight and Jesus gave a promise to us you know there's a blessing for those of us who haven't seen him personally and believe in him and so it's a wonderful thing but simultaneously there is a little bit of a loss of that tangibility and so with the rise of the new generation came a rise of new false teachings and new uh new challenges new heresies things that needed to be addressed about who is Jesus and how is he relevant for my life? And to what extent do I believe that what you're telling me is real? And what to extent is it, you know, maybe this is just an urban legend. Maybe this is a little bit myth. Maybe this is a little bit of just paganism mixed with a nice guy. And so who is Jesus and why does he really matter? And how does he apply to my life? John's having to answer all these questions. And so it's part of why the Gospel of John is such a great foundational book for a new believer. Because he's answering the question, who is Jesus? And second and third John are, are really, he's going to just be letters of exhortation to individuals. Um, 
Revelation is a specific revealing or a revelation from God to John for the whole church uh, of how the end of the world will play out. But 1 John is really just a fascinating book. We get to watch John just kind of unpack uh, who is God and how does, it, how does it impact our lives. And, you know, when Paul would do something like this, Paul sort of, uh, Paul sort of grabs hold of a theological bomb and then drops it in a letter. Okay, you get Galatians. It's all about standing grace, and you're just going to, like, blow that one up, and you're going you're gonna to study it. Ephesians is all about the goodness of God and what he's done. Philippians is all about our circumstances in the light of the gospel. Colossians is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Romans is all about the gospel. It's like each one is just these big, massive thoughts that Paul's expounding. John is a little more like a guy who found a machine gun with a full load and says, what does it do? And pulls the trigger, right? And so there's all these little thoughts in John that are just pinging around. And sometimes it can make it a confusing book because there's a couple of things that John says that are honestly a little hard for us to wrap our heads around. And so what we can do is we can say, wow, I read four things in this book that I don't really completely understand. This book must be impossible to understand. Well, the book is five chapters long. Uh, there are dozens of things in this book that any person can look at and say, oh, that's a truth I need to understand. That's a, something I need to grasp. And so if you read the book of 1 John, and please do, because an overview is not sufficient. Uh, if you read the book of 1 John, there are going to be parts where you kind of do that, you know, when the dog hears a high-pitched noise, like, what is that? Um, and that's okay. But don't then say, oh, this book is, is, you know, this book's too hard, this book's too complicated, whatever. Um, this book is, is invaluable. For us as believers. And if, so if you want to know why is the book written, it's a great question. John thought we might ask that. So he tells us uh, at least four different places. Uh, if you want to write them down, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 26, chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, these things we write so that our joy may be complete. So if you're lacking joy in your life, 1 John is a great place to start. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If you don't have sin in your life, 1 John is a great place to start. Chapter 2, verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So if you want to be on guard and aware of maybe false doctrines or teachings and know what do I need to do about them, 1 John's a great place to start. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you want to know you're saved, 1 John might be a great place to start. And so John is going to give us all these incredible truths about who God is. And um, different people outline the book different ways. I stole my outline from a guy in California, and I think it works pretty well, so we're going to go with it. Basically, John's going to teach us three things about God. He's going to teach us about God's light in chapters 1 and 2, God's love in chapters 3 and 4, and God's life in chapter 5, the life we get to have in God. So if we're looking at those, chapter 1, we're going to dive into the light of God. And so he starts off, chapter 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete." 
So John is writing about, first and foremost, he wants us to understand, he's writing about a physical Jesus Christ. And, you know, in our world, currently, culturally, there's a big temptation to say, well, Jesus was a great man, but he wasn't God. As John is writing this, there's a temptation to say, well, Jesus was God, but he wasn't an actual physical man. And it was a a heresy called Gnosticism that really hit the church hard in the second and third centuries. And so the basic idea was everything that's spiritual is good and everything that's physical is bad. So obviously Jesus couldn't have had a physical body. And And if you play it out, it led to some really just whacked out ideas and really messed up applications, okay? But John's writing to address this. And so as one of the last eyewitnesses, he says, I'm writing to you about Jesus. And I'm writing to you about an actual physical Jesus, a Jesus Christ that I touched, that I heard, that I saw, that I interacted with. I'm not talking about an apparition. I'm not talking about a hallucination or a great divine energy or a spirit. I'm talking about a human being who was fully human and fully God. That's who we're writing about. And we're writing these things so that you may have fellowship with us and in the fellowship that we have with the Father and with Jesus Christ. John's writing to us about Jesus so that we can know Jesus and have fellowship with Jesus. That's what this book is going to be about. This book is about helping us to engage in fellowship. Verse 5, he's going to go on. He's going to say, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's going to say to have, so he's talking about in verse 4, I'm writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And then he takes that thought in verse 5 and says, hey, if you want your joy to be complete, here's what you do, right? Read the book and then do the book. And what's he saying? Here's what you do. You understand and learn that God is light and in him, there is no darkness. And so if you're going to have fellowship with God, you can't walk in darkness. God is, light and dark do not coexist. There's not really shades of light and dark. It's different shades of dark. Where light exists, darkness does not exist. And so he's saying God is light and in him there is no darkness. So if you're going to have fellowship, if you're going to experience joy, that's only found in the light. And he's going to say, if we walk in that light, we have fellowship with one another and with Jesus, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And John's going to do this. He's going he's to kind of hit us back and forth through the whole book. And that is this. Uh, the Bible was not written in English, okay? The Bible was written in Greek. And so what we're going to see is John's going to use the word sin really to describe two different things. And it's going to bounce back and forth. And if you just read it real fast, you're going to feel like this book is a complete contradiction, because John says, hey, if you say you're walking with the Lord, but you have sin, you're not walking with the Lord. And he's going to say, hey, if you're walking with the Lord, the Lord forgives you of all your sins. And if you're walking with the Lord, you won't sin. And there's this like, what is he talking about? Well, in, I don't speak Greek, so newsflash. Um, but here's the thing. Basically, the word that we're going to, we're, when we're, John is describing sin, he's really describing two different things, Okay. 
Sin in the book of 1 John sometimes means stumbling in sin. Means I made a mistake, I made a bad call, I did the wrong thing. Maybe I even knew it was the wrong thing. But I'm on a path and a process of pursuing the Lord. And along the way, God has made me holy, he's making me holy, but I'm still trapped in a physical body that desires sinful things. And every once in a while, I'm, I choose those things over the Lord. And so you fall, you get back up, and you're in the pursuit of God. He's going to use the word sin to also describe walking in sin. And so I'm told, if you read Greek, it's a lot more clear. And because, you know, for us, in English, everything's very, like, time-oriented. And in Greek, when he's talking about the word sin here, he's talking about, like, a continual happening, right? An over, just like a, an on and on and on. Like, if I say, I was trying to come up with an English equivalent. And sort of the closest one I came up with is, I could say, a drop of water goes over Niagara Falls. And we're talking about a specific drop that's talking about a specific point in time. You could say the drop goes over at, whatever, 12.01 p.m. Eastern time. Or I could say, water goes over Niagara Falls. And if I say water goes over Niagara Falls, when? It just, it's going, right? Right now, it's going. It's, it's just happening. And so it's that, that continual, just it's happening. It's just doing its thing. The machine is moving. We got the system in place. It's walking in the system of sin, right? I know what the Lord says. I really don't care. I have no desire to walk in that obedience. I have no desire to let holiness impact my life. So John's going to jump back and forth between those two. And it's just important that we understand that because he'll be talking about, hey, like right here, if we say, verse six, that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. If you're walking in sin, you are not having fellowship with God. But if we walk in the light as he himself, as Christ is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're in the light, then as you stumble, you will still be cleansed, right? Stumbling in the light is not beyond cleansing, right? Walking away from the light, walking into darkness is stepping outside of fellowship with God. So he's going to be talking about two different things back and forth here. Um, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sinned, so again, I'm writing so that you don't walk in sin. And if anyone stumbles in sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So a couple things. He says, one, I'm writing so you don't sin. If you do sin, we have an advocate. When you sin, understand, Satan goes before God and says, this person does not deserve your love, they don't deserve your grace, they don't deserve your forgiveness, they don't deserve redemption, they don't deserve heaven. Satan is, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus Christ stands there and says, uh, but I paid for that one already. Ah, that one's paid in full. That one's marked out. It's paid in full. I already took care of that one. 
And God, as a righteous and holy judge, says, hey, he's right. Get out of here. Right? You, there's a, the forgiveness has happened not because God is washing it over, but because it's been paid in full. And so if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And so now then, we find ourselves in this dilemma, which is we can conceptually say, right, don't walk in sin. Got it. But we still stumble. And how do you determine when you're like, let's say you stumble with something regularly, maybe like three times in a row in one day. Well, wait a second. Is that like walking in sin? Does that mean I'm not in, does that mean I'm in darkness? Does that mean I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not even saved? I'm, I'm wrestling with the same sin over and over and over again. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. And, and Satan loves to do these things. He loves to try and get us in these mind games of, oh, yeah, you're probably not. You're better off staying away. You're, you've got problems, right? You've got troubles. Don't even bother. It is not worth your time. It is not worth God's effort. You do not deserve God's love. And so how do we tell? How do you tell if you are walking in the light? Well, if you keep his commandments. And you say, yeah, but I don't always keep his commandments. How do I know? He says, well, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Are you following after Christ? And, and, here's, and the great thing about it is that there's not a quantifiable point of perfection. Okay? How do you determine if you're walking after Christ? If you are walking after Christ. If you are trying to become more like Christ. Remember last week, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. What do you say? He said, if these things are yours and abound, you won't be barren or unfruitful. How do you know if you're walking in Christ? Well, are you increasing in virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love? It might be slow. Growth is not always quick, right? Some people grow like grass. Some people grow like, you know, oak trees. It's like, that doesn't look any bigger this year than it did last year. But it's still growing. And so growth is not always fast. But if you are walking after the Lord you can have an assurance of eternal life. That's not an excuse for sin. It's actually a call to recognize the grace and the goodness of God to then desire more earnestly to not sin, right? If you are desiring more and more to not sin, if you're taking steps to eliminate either the temptation of sin or the opportunity to sin because you are on a mission to pursue holiness with the Lord, then you're saved. You have an assurance of salvation, And he says in verse seven, beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. He says, guys, this honestly isn't anything new. This is all the way back to the book of Exodus. If you love the Lord, keep his commandments, right? and, And it's just kind of, it's almost implied throughout scripture, right? If I wanna say I'm a Christian, if I wanna say I'm a God follower, then there's sort of a base level assumption of I bet that means I'm trying to obey God. And so he says, this is old. You guys know this. On the other hand, verse eight, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is an old commandment. On the other hand, this ought to be fresh, right? Old truths can still have fresh application because I can believe that the grace of God applied to Simon Peter, but I need to know that the grace of God applied to me right now, applies to me this afternoon, this evening. And so it's an old truth, but it's got a fresh application for each of us. 
And then verse 12, he kind of jumps down, he switches into this little, um, kind of a poem, in essence, and he, he's going to describe three different levels of maturity in Christianity. He says, I'm writing to you little children. You know, if you're just like, you're just a kid in the kingdom of heaven, right? You're, you're a baby Christian. He said, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That's what defines a lot of young believers. What do, you, what do you know about the Lord? I know he forgave my sins. That's great. That's a phenomenal place to start. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him has been from the beginning. You know the mark of maturity is? Being like a father in the church, what is it? That you know him. The mark of maturity in a Christian life is not uh, that you know about God. It's not that you understand what everyone else in Christianity is doing wrong. It's that you know God on a personal level. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. If you're growing in, in your faith, if you're growing in perseverance and godliness and these things are increasing and abounding in your life, you're growing in self-control and brotherly kindness and love. He says, you're, you're over, you've overcome the evil one. And then he sort of repeats it uh, and tweaks it a little bit. I've written to you children because you know the Father. Any child in their faith can know God, right? Any person, no matter how far along they are in their journey, can experience the fullest point that a mature Christian can hope to ever attain, which is knowing God. That's a mark of maturity, but it's accessible any Christian at any point in their walk. He says, I'm, I've written to you fathers. Again, verse 14, because you know him who's been from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. So he's, you know, why is this book written? This book is written for any stage. Wherever you are out in your walk with the Lord, this book is written for you in the book of 1 John specifically, but obviously in the greater context, the word of God. These things are written for us at whatever point in our growth we are, so that we can know the truths about who God is. Chapter two, verse 15, he's gonna go on. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. He's continuing this thought about we're in the light of God, and so therefore we, have, we need to walk in the light and not in the darkness. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You wanna have fellowship with God? Don't love the world, right? We're all gonna stumble. We're all gonna make mistakes. We're gonna, we're gonna trip up in sin. If you wanna have fellowship with God, limit your ability to trip up, right? You can, you can do a lot of things to just make it inconvenient to sin in your life, right? At least with a lot of sins. And, and everybody's tempted in different ways. I understand that. But, but sometimes you can, you know, I want to walk in holiness, but man, it's a lot of fun to be tempted, right? I, I mean, sometimes, and honestly, it, it really it sounds stupid, but it, it honestly kind of is. Sometimes we're like, hey, you know what? I don't want to sin. I just want to think about it, sinning, right? Just, just a little bit. And you say, no, no, if you're going to, don't love the world. Don't try and have this kind of, you know, ex-girlfriend relationship with the world. No, no, cut yourself off from it. Um, it's passing away. The one who does the will of God lives forever. And then he's going to shift in verse 18 to like 25. And he's going to start talking about antichrist. And we'll get into it in Revelation a little bit more. But... Um, the term antichrist really just means like in place of 
Christ. And, he's gonna, and so specifically in Scripture, there's an individual who's referred to as the Antichrist who will sort of be the ultimate earthly fulfillment of someone who sets themselves up in place of Christ. But really, he's going to say any idea, any teaching, any individual who is trying to set up something or anything in place of Jesus Christ, well, you don't need Jesus, or you need Jesus and, or Jesus was less than, or Jesus was more than, or, or we're going to just kind of change it around and, and sort of create this institutionalized secrecy and whatever else. He's saying that is anti-Christ. And he's writing this again. Remember, Gnosticism, that the ancient heresy is about ready to explode onto the scene. And he say, hey, there are going to be false ideas and false teachings coming your way. John's writing this at about 85 or 90 AD. So it's been, on, it's been about 1,900 years since he wrote this. We've had a lot of false teachings and heresies and false teachers come our way. And so what do we do about it? Well, great question. He thought we'd ask it. And so in chapter 2, verse 26, he says, These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him. So, do you ever worry, like, what if, you know, there's a point in time in which you, you realize my scope of knowledge about the Lord is incredibly small, right? Like, you don't know what you don't know, but sometimes you know that I don't know a lot. And so there's that sense of, wow, there's so much about God I don't understand or comprehend. How do I know that I'm sort of doing it the right way? Because there are certain parts where you know you don't have it all figured out. So how do you know you're on the right path? How do you know you're doing the right thing? How do you know you're not listening to a hokey teacher or following a hokey doctrine? He says, well, hey, you know what? You don't need to worry about it. Because the, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. The Spirit of God is inside your heart. And he'll prompt you and say, you know what? I don't know what it is. I can't even give you the right chapter and verse to prove it. But that's wrong. That's nuts. Right? Sometimes you can hear a doctrine or a teaching or a teacher and there's just that like, I can't put my finger on it, but that's weird. And so he's not saying you don't need anyone to teach you in the sense of you shouldn't seek to grow and you shouldn't try and listen to great Bible teaching. He's saying you don't need to panic about, in the same way that you don't need to panic about, am I really saved? You don't need to panic about, am I going to get suckered into some sort of false doctrine? If you're abiding in Christ, Christ will keep you. If you're walking in the Word, the Word will sustain you. If you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit will empower you. False doctrine will not stand against that. Right? Jesus said, greater is he that is in me than is in the world. Or greater is he that is in you than is in the world. The Spirit of God in us is more powerful than all the intellect that the world has to offer. And so you don't have to have a, a PhD in whatever. Choose your field of study. You don't have to have it. You need the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will prompt you, warn you, guide you, if you abide in Him. So how do you know you're saved? Walk in Christ. How do you know you're not going to get suckered into a weird doctrine? Abide in Christ. Right? So John's writing these assurances to us as a comfort. And uh, so he's kind of giving us this idea, and then he's going to make a switch here in chapter 3 and start talking about God's love. 
So we've been talking about God's light, walking in God's light. All right, now he's going to make a little bit of a shift, and we're going to talk about the love of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And he says, okay, let's remark on how great the love of God is. Let's remember then that the world doesn't know us. The world should think you're odd. And that's okay. Sometimes you just got to sort of be okay with the fact that the world's going to think we're nuts. And maybe it's because we are. Um, he says, we're children of God. And it's not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him. Okay, we try and extrapolate in our minds all the time. What is heaven going to be like? And, and all these, we were having this debate this morning. Five Murphys felt the need, myself included, to argue about whether or not angels need to wear clothes. Because... Because they're spiritual beings and, and they haven't sinned and, and it, you could say it's a stupid argument and you're not wrong. But, you know, Murphy's like to discuss things and so we're having this discussion. Do angels need to wear clothes? And, and here's the deal. We can try and extrapolate this out. What does heaven look like? And, and do the angels have clothes? And you know, the, you know the answer is? We have no idea, right? What do we know about when we get to heaven? We know that we're going to be like Jesus Christ, in his glorified state. I have no idea what that looks like. And you can try and imagine it, but you got to remember, we're seeing things on a finite plane, right? I have no idea what my body looks like in six dimensions. But I don't know. That's just an interesting thought. And I don't care if you could explain it to me or illustrate it for me. I still wouldn't believe you, right? But what makes you think that heaven is three-dimensional? What makes you think that it's, you know, sometimes we think it's just spirit, like it's non-dimensional. I don't, what, what is it? What's heaven going to be like? It's not quite clear yet, right? It is not clear yet what we're going to be. I don't know what I'm going to look like. I know this. I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to be purified and glorified, and the grace of God will have attained full glory in my life, right? And I won't have the drive or the desire to sin, my consuming desire will be fellowship with, with God. I can't like fathom what that would do to a physical body, right? I have no idea. So what are you going to do with this? I, I don't know, but I have this hope. So what should you do? If you have this hope that you're going to someday see God in that kind of glory, what should you do? Purify yourself just as he is pure. If you have that eternal hope of, I don't know exactly what's coming, but I know enough to know it's going to blow my mind, then what, then what should we do about it? Let's get ready for it, right? Why, why screw around with, hey, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? What? Those things are passing away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Uh, he goes on in verse 4 of chapter 3. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Again, here he's talking about that recurring pattern of choosing to walk in sin. Verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
The one who practices sin is of the devil. Notice that word practices, right? That, that recurring idea. For the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So he's carrying out this idea. If you're going to know and experience the love of God, you're going to walk in the love of God. You can't walk in the love of God and love the world at the same time. Jesus said that. He said, you can't serve two masters. Sooner or later, you're going to have to make a decision in your life. Where, where are you going? Where is this heading? Um, verse 16, he's kind of carrying the, he's going to, well, yeah, verse 16. We're carrying the idea out, again, of God's love. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. So he says, hey, look, let's, we're going to talk about the love of God. Well, let's define the love of God, right? What is love? It's not, necess- it's not a feeling. God doesn't love you because he felt so warm and fuzzy towards you when you hated him, right? He didn't, he didn't basically strangle to death on the cross, just because it felt fun and because there was this great, you know, emotional high. He chose to love you. So we got to go back. What is the love of God? And he's saying the love of God is to understand that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for one another. And then he carries it out practically. And he says, now make that a practical thing, right? Uh, you know, somebody said, it's easy to say you'll die for God, but are you willing to live for God? I could tell any one of you in this room, hey, I love you enough, I would jump in front of you, you know, to save your life. I would jump in front of a situation to save your life. But would I take out the trash for you? Get out of my way, right? Why would you ask, you want me to take out the trash for you, right? What kind of, what kind of selfish request is that from you anyways, fatso, right? I mean, I mean, we get in this idea like, oh, yes, I, I, would, I would die for you. Great. Would you mind doing like a basic act of service? He's saying, just, if you're going to make, you know, your love should be practical and visible and lived out before it's these big claims that you never back up, right? Big claims are wonderful, but back them up with your daily interactions. Uh, Verse 23, he says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. John always mentions in his writings about the Spirit of God abiding in us. Like, uh, you know, you go back to the Last Supper, it's just over and over and over again. The Helper's coming. The Spirit's coming. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to show you things. He's going to explain things to you, okay? He's saying we're, in, we're talking about the love of God. Well, if you love God, you keep his commandments, he says. So what's his commandment? Believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. To love God is to love people around you. That's the manifestation of the love of God. And this is just like he commanded you. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. How are you going to abide in him? How do you know that he's abiding in you? By the Spirit. You walk in the love of God by fulfilling the commands of God by the power of the Spirit of God living in you and working through you. 
right? How do you know you're in the light? Because you're walking in the light. How do you know that you're not in love with the world? Because you're in love with the Lord. How do you know that you're walking in the commandments of God? Because you're abiding in Christ and the Spirit of God is abiding in you. Chapter four, he's gonna carry this out even further but kind of make a shift. Uh, He says, beloved, don't believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So love is going to be based in truth. Love is not just a blanket acceptance of everything that everybody says, right? Hey, I love you, therefore whatever you say is good. No, 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 no. Test the spirits. And he's, gonna, and he's carrying this idea again, like in chapter 2, talking about there will be antichrists who arise and ideas that are antichrist and teachings that are antichrist. He's saying don't just accept something because it has the word Christian stuck on it, Right? Uh, he says, verse four, you are from God, little children, and I've overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. So he's gonna say, look, you're gonna hear spirits come. There's gonna be people who claim divine revelation. There's gonna be people who claim all kinds of things. You test them, right? Never, yes, you should grow and learn from other Christians who are, who are more mature in the Lord, who have walked a, you know, a longer stretch than you have. Absolutely. But never take what an individual human being tells you over the word of God. You should never sit in a teaching and just say, yeah, it's okay, I trust this person. You know, that's why we encourage you, that's why I said, turn to the book of 1 John. I didn't say close your Bibles and listen to me as I reveal the word of God. No, 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 you gotta be reading along. You gotta be making sure I don't misquote them, right? I always love, I actually don't love, but it's always kind of funny. When dad's in the back corner, and I start to go off on a rabbit trail. You can see this thing in his eyes sometimes where he's not sure where I'm going. And he, ha- he gets that like, that, you know, when a dog can't tell where the sound's coming from. Like, he kind of just, he kind of leans back and he doesn't, and he kind of just locks in motion. And then I get back out of the rabbit trail and back on track and he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like, where is he? Okay, yeah, we're safe, right? But, the, but, the idea is real. You shouldn't be just like, it shouldn't be just like, sure, whatever, it's cool. No, you should be taking whatever you hear back and testing it against the word of God. So then he's gonna jump down in chapter four, verse seven, carrying the idea of loving one another in truth. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Beloved, he's saying, love one another as a demonstration that you're born of God, that you've experienced the love of God. He says, you have not seen God. John's at this point where he's really, he's the last one who can say, I saw God in, in human flesh. But even that wasn't the fully glorified sense, right? John, in Revelation, he'll talk about seeing Jesus. He says his tongue was like a flaming sword, 
Okay? That's not what Jesus looked like on earth. John's, John's really the last one. He's saying, you have not seen God. So how do you know that you love God? By the way in which you love one another. Anybody can claim to love something they've never seen. Right? There are people who talk about movie stars and will reference, like, I'm in love with that person. You've never met the person. The person doesn't know you exist. They don't care if you live or die. And yet we'll say things like, oh, I've got a crush on this person. No, you don't. Right? That's not, not in a tangible sort of a way. So he's saying, okay, experience the love of God in the way that it lives out in the love toward other people, in how you love those around you, in how you love people you don't like loving. Experience the love of God. And he says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Love is not something that births out of us naturally. Love is something that is birthed into us by God, right? You are not naturally a loving person. I am not naturally a loving person, but in this is love, that God loved us, that we've experienced love, and because we've experienced it, because it has gone into us, it is now able to go out of us. If you are trying to send love out of your heart without having received it in, you have nothing to pour out. And so again, he's gonna, he ties it back again. By this we know that we abide in him. How? Because he's given us of his spirit. The love of God is, in, is entirely tied to the spirit of God in your life. It's impossible to love as God commands us to love if we don't have the spirit of God empowering us in that way. So this book is all about the love of God. And, as, and so you take a step back. It's all about fellowshipping with God, right? This book is in total agreement with Second Peter, which is what? Keep growing. Keep walking in these things. Say, keep walking in the light. You stumbled? Keep walking. You weren't loving? Keep walking. You weren't abiding? Keep abiding, right? Or if in the case of Peter, you didn't have self-control or brotherly kindness or love? Well, keep growing, and you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful. And so he's just kind of, he's carrying this idea. You've got to abide in the Spirit of God. Chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God's abide, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. You can't experience love without experiencing God. You can't experience God without experiencing love. They're just... They are tied together because love is the essence of God's nature. It's holy love, right? It's not, it's not romantic love. It's not, it's not, you know, happy feelings or happy thoughts. It's holy love. It's love that dies, right? Love that judges, love that protects. But it is the essence and the definition of the character of God. You cannot know love without knowing God. You cannot know God without knowing his love. And so he's going to wrap up chapter 4. Chapter 5, just kind of sort of the last tail end of the book, he's going to talk about God's life and the life that we have through the Lord. So chapter 5, verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. If you love God, you love Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus Christ, you love God the Father. It's a, and by extension, he's including it elsewhere, the Spirit as well. Right? You receive God as he reveals himself. You take the whole Trinity or none of the Trinity. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So we said you know that you love God by loving his children. Well, here he says you are going to love the children of God well 
by loving God well, right? Sometimes we just try and, like, oh, just pour out yourself for other people and never back up to, you know, recharge your relationship with the Lord on a personal level. You're just burning it out, right? If that well doesn't get refilled, that well runs dry. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, you could kind of look at, you know, it depends on how you want to read it. You could say, well, wait a second. He just told me I can't sin. I can't love the world. I can't do any of this stuff. And now he's going to have the nerve to go off and tell me these aren't, these aren't hard. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet every single one of us in the room sinned today. Right? He says, keep the commandments of God. They're not hard. They're not burdensome. What's he talking about? Well, what are the, command, what, what are the commandments of God? What is it? Jesus summed it up. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. The amount of self-preservation that you love to have towards yourself, the extent to which you like to protect your dignity and the way people think about you, express that towards other people, not first, no, no, second. Because before you do that, you love the Lord with everything you've got. Once you've got every fiber of your being pouring into, into loving God, you'll come to find out that that's the most refreshing regenerating, empowering thing you can ever do with your life. Loving God is not a drain, right? It is a fire hydrant in. It's a, you know, it's absorbing life and power and strength and vitality in a way you can't imagine otherwise. So what are the commandments of God? He said, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. He who abides in me bears much fruit. Hang out in the presence of Jesus Christ. Wow, that is such a drag. No, no, no. The commandments of God are not burdensome. Abide in Jesus Christ. Experience Jesus Christ and just let everything else happen as a ripple out from that. That's where, that's what it is. So his commands are not burdensome. Four, verse four, whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Salvation equals love God, obey his commands. That's where he's at with those, with those four verses. Chapter five, or chapter five, verse five. Um, he says, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. And so he's saying, okay, a couple things here. He's referencing the Trinity and building the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, to be fair, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. Depending on your translation, part of uh, verse 7 may or may not be in your Bible. Okay? And there are reasons for that. It's, there's a couple of manuscripts that don't have it, a couple of manuscripts that do have it. Out of, out of the tens of thousands of copies that we have of the, of the New Testament, of uh, the original manuscripts, uh, there are some copies that don't have part of that verse. And there are great scholars on both sides of the issue. Some people would say, well, that's because they were edited out. Some people would say they were edited in. I tend to lean towards the side that they were over time edited out because it was more time, it was convenient for certain copyists to try and diminish the Trinity. So I think they belong in. Um, but here's the deal. Our whole doctrine of the Trinity doesn't hinge on this verse. This verse is a, is a wonderful illustration of it, but the Trinity is everywhere in Scripture, right? 
And so I say that not to confuse you or make it a pain to read First John. I say that basically so that if you're ever in a conversation with someone who says, well, you know, the Trinity is not in the Bible. And if you go here, there's a chance that they'll say, well, actually, that's not, that verse doesn't count. That was added later. That was, and you can kind of just get yourself, you know, thrown around in, in an awkward way. So it's, just, it's one of those where there are, you know, there are some questions, uh, and that's fine. Um, there's really like basically four spots in the entire Bible where we have just like a couple questions. How is this meant to be read most accurately? It doesn't change Christianity for us because the doctrines that are represented in those are elsewhere in Scripture, and so it's not like our faith is hinging on these. But for the sake of honesty, uh, there's a couple manuscripts where we have some, some questions about this. That being said, bear in mind, okay, when we talk about ancient manuscripts, we're talking about tens of thousands, right? The Bible is, uh, you know, so sometimes you can only say, oh my gosh, there's four spots where, where there's a little bit of room for someone to ask an honest question. Okay, bear in mind what that means, right? That puts the Bible at like, whatever it is, 99.97% complete unison across every manuscript that we have. That means, you know, I mean, at this point, uh, the entire, if we didn't have a single copy of the New Testament in Greek, we could rebuild the entire New Testament from quotes that early church fathers reference. We have so many copies. The Bible is like without question, far and away, above and beyond, the most accurate ancient book that exists on earth today. Okay? So, yeah, okay, there's, there's a verse, there's a half a verse actually that helps it with an idea of the Trinity that we believe is elsewhere in Scripture. And so I just, I say that just basically to not blow past it and feel like I'm glossing over something that could raise an honest question. Um, verse 13 through 15, he's going to say, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This book is here for us so that we have, so we can know that we have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in James, so we're not going to unpack this a ton, right? But the Bible tells us to pray boldly. And praying in accordance with the will of God does not mean that you can finish any prayer with, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, and it's given. It means if you're praying a prayer that Jesus once prayed, and it's in accordance with the will of God, then the will of God is already at work to make it happen, right? So if you want to pray that God will make you rich, that may or may not be in the will of God. God really probably uh, might feel that you're better off without Elon Musk's level of money, right? Um, If you want to pray that you'll grow in your knowledge of the word, that you'll abide in Christ more, that you'll have an opportunity to share the love of God with someone else, right? God already wants those things for your life. We know that. And so he's already working to make those things happen. So if you pray those things, you're praying in accordance with the will of God. And so the will of God is already at work to accomplish his will. Uh, Verse 18, as we're just wrapping up here, he says, we know that no one who's born of God sins. Again, he's talking about walking in a a long-term pattern. But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true 
in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, sometimes the last verse always feels a little funny in First John. Like, he just meant to stick it in earlier and forgot. It's like, oh yeah, one more thing. Um, no, put it in its context, okay? He's saying, we're not of this world, right? Little children, um, we're know that, we know that we're of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are, this world, we inhabit it, but we are not citizens of it. We are citizens of a totally different kingdom. And so God has come so that we can be free from idols. John's writing this really as persecution against Christians is, is heating up. And for the next several centuries, it would just continue. And the Romans were adamant about trying to stand about Christianity. They didn't care that Christians were worshiping Jesus Christ. They didn't care. Rome had thousands of gods and goddesses. You could worship whoever you wanted, but they did care about the fact that the Christians said, no, we cannot also worship Caesar. All you had to do to save your life as a Christian in ancient Rome was dip a little incense in a burner and say, Caesar also is Lord. That's not very hard to do, right? And you say, well, I don't mean it. You, know, you, you can work your way around it. And Christians said, I will die before I put that little thing in the burner and say those three words. Because why? Because I'm not of this world. Because Christ has come and set me free from this world. So no, I'm, so, so when John says keep ourselves from idols, contextually, he's saying because of God's light, because of God's love, because of the life we have in Christ, because we can abide in the Spirit of God by the power of God, because God loves us and we've experienced His love, because we're told to not love the world or the things of the world, because of all these things, yes, guard yourselves from idols. In a sense, it's just sort of like a, a basic summary, right? What's, what's a great, you just want a great first step in, in walking with the Lord? Is there something that is in your way? If I want to step towards the Lord and there's something in my way that's blocking me from serving the Lord, get it out, right? So keep yourselves from idols. So it's not, a, it's not an out of context or a, a random thought. It's a great summary and a great, here's your next step. And so that's what John's giving us. He's giving us the light of Christ, the love of God, and the life that we have. It's a book that was written so that our joy may be complete, so that we might not sin, so we could know we have an assurance of salvation if we believe in Jesus Christ. It's a rich book. All right, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we've gotten to just, as we're hitting into the Christmas season, we gotta think about John knowing and experiencing a, a personal, physical God who came down to, to love us and save us and uh, not just rescue us for eternity, but, but give us power in this life here and now. We thank you for that, God. God, we can't even fathom what it's like for God to, to package himself up into an, an embryo and to then go through just the, the process of growing up and being human. That it's beyond our mind's ability. But we thank you for it, God. We believe that it's true. And so we pray that, like John said, we have this hope, therefore we purify ourselves, that we, would, uh, that we would walk in the light, walk in the love, walk in the life that you have for us, that we'd abide in your spirit. And I pray that these things would be ours in abundance, that we would grow in them and walk in them, and that you would be glorified in our hearts. And it's 
in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our God, that we pray. Amen.